series called Life in Babylon, going through the story of uh, Daniel and his mates in Babylon. Of course, uh, it's a story about uh, the people of God, the Jews, who uh, for many centuries had lived uh, in in a culture where all of the cultural institutions had um, supported their worldview and um, reinforced their uh, belief in God. But then uh, in 589 BC, the Babylonians, uh, because of their sins, they had were allowed to uh, take over and conquer them, and they had carried them off uh, into exile, into their own uh, place uh, in Babylon, uh, where the cultural institutions were different. They were uh, religiously pluralistic. Uh, they did not support their monotheism. Uh, all of the government, the media, the education and the arts uh, were committed to religious pluralism. Uh, And so there's this immediate tension between uh, the people of God and uh, their beliefs and the culture of Babylon. The the, the people of God, of course, they believe the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But uh, the culture of of Babylon and the institutions and the media and education and, and all of it, they said, no, 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 that's... That's wrong. That's that's narrow-minded. That's that's bigoted. There are many gods. There are many ways. There are many valid uh, moralities and cultures. And and so, uh, not only did the culture of Babylon feel incredibly comfortable about uh, the people of God, but of course, the people of God felt incredibly uncomfortable about the culture of Babylon. And so, there's this there's this tension, and it, it raises the question for for the people of God in any culture: how how do, do we exist within this tension? And that's really the kind of overriding theme of uh, the story of Daniel. And it all begins in chapter 3, verse 1, with a golden statue. It, it says it's uh, 60 cubits high. That's, that's 27 metres high and, and then uh, 6 cubits wide, 2.7 metres wide. And, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up this statue. It, it's not clear whether uh, this is a depiction of Nebuchadnezzar or a depiction of Nebuchadnezzar's God. That's not clear. But I think the ambiguity is on purpose because it will enable as many people as possible in the culture to kind of superimpose their God and their beliefs on, onto the God. It, it's sort of a, a, a diversity and inclusivity exercise where, where as many people as possible can, can be included as long as they bow down and, and worship the statue. So the identity of the statue is ambiguous, but the power behind the statue is crystal clear. The very opening verse, one, King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue. Verse seven, it's the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now you can see what he's trying to do, can't you? He's he's trying to consolidate power and he's also trying to create unity within his kingdom, just like all good dictators and despots, right? Since the dawn of time. I mean, so under the empire of Rome, the the choice for Christians was between saying Caesar is Lord or Christ is Lord. Under the Nazi regime, the, the cry was what? Hail Hitler. Under Xi Jinping in China, it's well documented that that they've taken down crosses from the church and they've replaced them with pictures of Xi Jinping. How'd you like that for St. Phillips? Anthony Albanese, big big face (laughs) up there. 
at, at the front. You, you choose. It's, it's okay for you to have your God as long as you put him in second place. Even in our much more free and open society, only two and a half weeks ago, the erstwhile CEO of Essendon Football Club was given a choice between his career and Christ in our open and free society. As one article I read put, because of course this is all in the name of diversity and inclusivity, exclusion in the name of inclusion lacks coherence. You better bet it does. But far more terrifying than just losing their careers, like Andrew Thorburn did, are these four words in verse 6. Furnace of blazing fire. Verse 11. Furnace of blazing fire. Verse 15. Furnace of blazing fire. Verse 17. Verse 20. Verse 21. Verse 23. Furnace of blazing fire. Are you getting the point? The kingdom is saying it's fine for you to have your God. Everyone can have their God as long as you're willing to put him or her in second place. Now, some of you might feel this in the workplace, like Andrew Thorburn did for the 30 hours that he had his job, or it might be that uh, you feel it when normal work practices where you work are simply not in line with God's justice or God's truth. You might feel it in the education system where in a science class uh, you're free to teach any view to the classroom except the idea that there might be an intelligent design behind everything that exists. You might feel it in social situations where uh, it kind of feels like you're allowed to talk about any topic under the sun except really for your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the temptation to go along with what the entire apparatus of the state and the media and the intelligentsia are doing, which is bowing down to the golden statue. And, and, and in this story, for a while, it looks like everything's going perfectly well for King Nebuchadnezzar until he finds out that, that, that there's a fly in the ointment. Uh, you know, just like the dream that he had in the previous uh, uh, chapter of this great big golden statue, uh, all it took was a tiny little rock and the whole project comes crashing down. And so it is here in Daniel 3, verse 12. Some people come to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, uh, there are certain Jews, which is starting curiously to look a little bit like racism and prejudice, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Could this be jealousy and sour grapes in the workplace? Are they seeing an opportunity to get ahead by climbing over their colleagues? These men pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Now, it's worth noting that that there are only three men out of verse 2 and 3, all the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces. And verse 4, the peoples, the nations and the languages, there are only three men who will not bow down. Does it ever feel like that for you in your family? If you think about your neighbourhood, does it, does it feel like that for you or, or your workplace? 
or society at large or your school. The, the Bible is, is very clear for us and unambiguous that, that standing up for God can be a very lonely and isolated experience, which, of course, is why we need each other, to build each other and to encourage one another. Now, the stand that uh, these guys are making is an incredibly public stand. A bit like Martin Luther 500 years ago. He's famous for saying, uh, it's me against the world. But the important thing to remember is that whether it's a public stand or a private stand, either way, it's living for an audience of one. And it's an audience of one that far outweighs all of the other audience. That's what's going on here. I really like the, the seesaw analogy that Tim Thorburn used. If you were here uh, a few weeks ago, uh, it's worth reiterating. He, he talked about how there's a direct correlation in our hearts between the audience of one, which is God, and the audience of many, which is everyone else. And, and it's like a seesaw. The more fear you have for God, and, and we're not talking about being afraid of God, we're talking about acknowledging him as he really is in all his glory and majesty and greatness and power, the more fear you have for God, then the less fear you'll have for others. But the less fear you have for God, not being afraid, the less real estate that he takes up within your heart and your mind and your soul, then then the more fear that you'll have for others. It's a direct correlation, like a seesaw. So one way that we can bring down these idols is to feed ourselves on the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God by reading the scriptures and praying that by his spirit he'll enlarge our view. It's interesting, we we talked about Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. Well, he prays in Ephesians 1 that God will give you power, that your eyes may be enlightened to see the gloriously great power that he has. But we need power to, to fill our hearts and minds and souls with the greatness and majesty of God. That's one way to bring down these idols. But another way is you need to see that they've got clay feet. Isn't it interesting that right on the heels of Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a statue that is gold at its head and has clay feet and comes tumbling down, which is to say to him and to us that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but every kingdom, every company, every CEO, every policy and every president has clay feet. It will not last. And right on the heels of a dream that's telling Nebuchadnezzar this very point, what does he do? He builds a golden statue. Does it have clay feet? No. It's gold from head to toe. Do you you see what's going on here? This is an act of defiance against God and his revelation to him. But not only is it an act of defiance, it's an act of deception. Self-deception and deception of everyone. Because the kingdoms of this world are not what they're cracked up to be, despite all their appearances of power and majesty. And they try to convince you that this is all very deadly serious and they're not to be taken for granted. But as we sometimes say, the emperor's got no clothes. The first part of the reading, I think the author is dripping with sarcasm and satire 
and poking holes and poking fun all through the telling of this story. Because one of them that you see is that in chapter 2, we've just seen that God is the one who sets up kings and God is the one who brings them down. And and, and then again and again and again in this chapter, chapter 3, we're reminded by the author that this statue that everyone must bow down to and pay homage to as if it were almighty God is the statue, verse 2, that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. That King Nebuchadnezzar set up, verse 3a and verse 3b. That King Nebuchadnezzar set up, verse 5. That King Nebuchadnezzar set up, verse 7. It keeps going in verse 12 and verse 14. And then the men actually call out the king's bluff in verse 18 when they say, we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. In other words, it's all a setup. It's all a setup. Well, the same thing with this sense of humour and this preposterous nature of what's going on here, this charade in verse 2, where it says the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counsellors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, verse 2, and then the author goes, repeats it all again in verse 3, and the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, the entire musical ensemble, verse 5, verse 6, and then again in verse 10, Dale Ralph Davis writes, By the way he writes up the story, the writer turns the pomp into pomposity and coats the dignity with derision. One of the things that we like to do in our household when somebody gets a new set of clothes is to try them on and to do a catwalk. You're never going to look at me the same. The fashion industry is a $1.7 trillion global behemoth and it has set up its golden statues and its glittering images everywhere and it's saying to my daughters that if you don't bow down and worship this golden statue, we will throw you into the burning fiery furnace of ugliness and worthlessness, and rejection, if you will not bow down. And our entire culture is bowing down to this golden statue, and in the meantime, the levels of self-hatred, the levels of self-loathing, the levels of self-harm, and the levels of suicide are going right through the roof. And what I'm saying to you is that according to Daniel 3, one of the ways in which to respond... I'm serious. Nebuchadnezzar is not joking. It's true. But he is a joke. It's not true. He's got clay feet. 
And I think we see very clearly that sarcasm and satire is one of the weapons to tear down the idols. So brothers and sisters in Christ, have you lost your sense of humour? Have you discovered the freedom of what it is to be a sinner saved by grace and to know that you can laugh at yourself and what it is to be able to laugh at others because you know that you've got clay feet and you know that they've got clay feet. You see, this is one of the glorious freedoms of being a sinner saved by grace is that you can laugh at yourself and laugh at others because we know that they've got clay feet. I hope you haven't lost your sense of humour and I hope you can see the glorious freedom of being a sinner saved by grace. Well, let's keep going because if you're going to be willing to stand up to these idols, I think we know that you need to be prepared to face the consequences. Have a look in verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that they be brought in and in his magnanimity, he's willing to give them a second chance. And this brings us to the central hinge of the entire story, verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defence to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. Now, the translation of this verse is kind of hotly uh, debated, but every commentary that I read this week um, just makes one change uh, that does make a significant difference so that what they say to the king is, is not, if our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but if our God whom we serve is willing to deliver us. In other words, the thing that they are unsure of, uh, unsure of is not whether God is able to deliver them, deliver them because the book of Daniel is replete with God's ability and from his deliverance from Pharaoh in Egypt is replete with God's ability to save them. That's not what's in question. What's in question is whether God is willing to deliver them. But we can never know in any specific instance whether God is willing, but we can always know that he's able. But more importantly, for the point of the story, what we can always know is that in any and every situation, God says, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make an idol and nor bow down to them. That's the truth in any and every situation, which is why in verse 18 they say, but if our God won't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Can you imagine being there? This is an act of tremendous courage against the might of the empire and King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's easy for us to imagine, would we be able to take the same stand under the same set of circumstances? But But I'm not sure that that's a helpful line to go down because it's much more helpful to realise that that we actually face these kinds of decisions under much lesser settings every single day. Will I give my allegiance in this situation to the Lord Jesus Christ or will I bow down to the idols of our culture or to the idols of my own heart? And of course, in our society, we're not talking about literal statues. We're talking about the values and the ideals and the aspirations that our society tells us that we have to have and that we need in order to live a fulfilled life. 
And these idols promise to bless me if I bow down and worship them with all of the things that they promise. And they promise to curse me if I refuse to bow down and meet their demands. So academic success promises to bless you with success and admiration if you're in year 12 sitting exams at the moment. And power and influence if only you cancel all of your appointments, lock yourself in your bedroom and study, study, study. And if you want to stand up to that idol, then be prepared to face its wrath. Because you'll be punished severely and thrown into the fiery burning furnace of not getting into your university degree and not getting the career that you want and not getting the income that you need and not getting the spouse and the kids and blah, blah, blah. You'll be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. You could apply this in so many different ways, but there's also the golden image of our own sinful desires and appetites. We can become obsessed with food and drink or sexual satisfaction or our own comforts or our next big holiday. And and they tell us that if we can't get our hands on our precious, then we'll be thrown into the burning fiery furnace of boredom or frustration if we can't get them. But if you're willing to take a stand, then prepare to face the wrath. Look at verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times because, verse 22, because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted them. Now, Ian Duguid points out a wonderful irony at this point in the story that the ones who obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command, remember everyone bowed down and worshipped, died, while those whom he could condemn to death emerged alive. Just as Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever wants to lose, whoever loses his life for me will what? Will find it. In verse 15, King Nebuchadnezzar arrogantly asks, who is the God who will be able to deliver you out of my hands? But that's the wrong question. The question is not whether or not God is able to safeguard the saints. The question is whether Nebuchadnezzar can. For all of his appearances to power and glory and for all of the promises that he makes, it turns out that he can't. You see, our idols, they promise so much. And they deliver so little. But the surprise doesn't stop there. In verse 25, he says, I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they're not heard. And the fourth has the appearance of a God. There's debate about this fourth figure as to whether it's um, actually the pre-incarnate Christ with them or whether it's an angel of the Lord. But, but either way, this is a physical representation and demonstration of God's presence with his people while they're in the fire. And I want you to see that God doesn't just deliver them from the fire, he delivers them through the fire. And this is in keeping with the prophecy that he promised in Isaiah 43, verse 2, where he says, when you walk through the fire, not if, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God doesn't promise that a fire isn't coming. In fact, he promises that a fire is coming. But here's the thing. It's precisely in the fiery furnace that our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is most 
powerfully displayed. Those of us who were privileged to be at the prayer meeting on Tuesday night saw this in Pastor Azim and Alishba who are suffering persecution in Pakistan. The glory of Christ in them moved us to tears. I saw the tears in your eyes as we watched Rebecca in Nigeria holding out the word of truth under the fiery flames, literally, and we see it no more where nowhere more clearly than with the Lord Jesus Christ. God with us in this world. He faces he faced the temptations and trials that we face. He he suffered the weariness that we all suffer, but he was without sin. When tempted by the devil in the desert with all of the kingdoms of the world, he said, it's written that worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He faced every trial and temptation that we face to a much greater extent, and yet he never once bowed down to an idol of the culture, to Satan, or to his own heart. And if that wasn't coming close enough to us to be with us in our trials, then he was falsely accused, arrested by the might and power of the Roman Empire, and then he was strung up on a cross. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he was faithful unto death. But unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God didn't go with him. He didn't have the presence of the Lord to sustain him while he hung on the cross. He was hung out to dry in the utter aloneness and abandonment from God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to God for his help and there was complete silence. God was not with him. And so he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How on earth does that work? How is it? That God could be with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they were in the fire and abandon his dearly beloved, precious son. Why would God uh, commit to be with walking with sinful Israel and then abandon his perfectly sinless son? How does that work? Well, the answer, of course, is that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for all of our compromise. For every time we've bowed down to the idols of our culture and the idols of our hearts and for all of our cowardice and our idolatry, he took in himself on the cross to suffer the fiery furnace of God's punishment for our sins. See, I don't know about you, but I'm nothing like Daniel and his friends. It it takes far less for me than a burning fiery furnace to bow down to the idols of our culture and to the idols of my heart. And, And the Bible is very clear that that earns me the fiery judgment of God every time I put something else before him. And friends, make no mistake, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 13. He says, those who will not bow before the king will be thrown into the blazing furnace, Jesus says, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus, the King. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, of course, you see, Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one who demands that people should bow down. Jesus demands the same, but unlike 
Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus is worthy of our worship and our admiration and our praise. And unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, our God came down to earth to face the fiery furnace of God's judgment for us because he loved us so much that he didn't want us to bear it. And the wonderfully good news of the gospel is that not only is all my unfaithfulness to God being credited to Jesus on the cross where he was condemned in my place, but his immeasurably great faithfulness to God has been credited to me, a faithfulness far more glorious than the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego has been credited to me as a free gift of God's grace. And those who recognize this, the glory of the king who went through the fire for us, one day, on that day when he returns, people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue will be gathered around the throne and they will give worship and praise to that king. But unlike in this story, we will not need to be commanded to fall down on our faces. Because on that day when we see in all its fullness the glory of all that he is and all that he's done, it will be our joy and our privilege and our delight to fall down on our faces before his nail-pierced feet. And to cry out to him, as it says in Revelation, blessing and honor and glory and power to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praised forever and ever. Amen. And so when you come under the fire, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.